definitely the favorite coming into that bout. As I mean, as I as understandably so. Um, he looked like someone who who had all the tools to defeat Woodley. Um, and he could definitely, and he was on a quite a bit of a surge at the point in time. However, he was unable to get the job done. Woodley actually performed a lot better than a lot of people thought. Um, dropping Thompson, cutting him badly in the first round. So I honestly, walking away from that fight, I was really impressed with what I saw. And now we have the rematch upon us. And So what's going on is now that one second, people. Hello? Hey, how you doing, Swan? Yeah. Swan, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep, I can now. I'm resending the link to you and um, Steven just to make sure you have it. But you joined us right when we are just starting to talk about um, UFC 205. Excuse me, not 205, 209. But I started by looking at the main event, which is a rematch from UFC 205, where we have Stephen Thompson and Tyron Woodley fighting again over the welterweight title. And while this fight is, you know, it's for the 175-pound belt, 170-pound belt, uh, it's definitely a big, um, big important fight for both men. But I think that there's a little more on the line for Tyron Woodley. I wrote about it this week um, that, you know, this is an opportunity for him to keep the platform that he's created for himself. You know, he's been saying some things that a lot of people have found very controversial in recent weeks. And I, for one, don't fully disagree with him. I understand where he's coming from, but a lot of people are very upset that he's talking about what he's talking about. So if he loses Saturday, I think that he loses that platform to have these conversations and to even drive the talk in any way, shape, and form. So I think that this is a big fight for him with a lot more than just a title on the line. Yeah, um, I, I thought about this. I compare him to kind of like Floyd Mayweather or maybe uh, Bernard Hopkins. Because in the case of Floyd Mayweather, he was never defeated. So he got to say and do a lot of things and have a lot of leverage. One fight, he wouldn't have been able to do. And in the case of Bernard Hopkins, he was an unpopular fighter who wasn't pushed. It wasn't the kind of guy that got behind. But he kept winning and he kept pulling off upsets. And every time he got his platform, he would call out either prejudice or how much of a business it was or how people weren't being true to the sport of the, the, the uh, purity of the sport, which is what Tyrone Woodley's doing. Like you said, it's good when you're winning and you say that, I mean, you should say this stuff anytime, but the fact is when you're winning, you have a platform and you can make certain stances and refuse to answer certain questions and take a certain tone with the media. But once you lose that title or you start losing that uh, interesting story, the fact that you're not one of the best or not the very best, so it, it is a lot on the on the line for him, and 
I understand a large part of his his argument. It pro- a lot of people think I don't, but it's just it's like a it's a risky play to take. You know, if you want to you want to make that stand, you you make the stand that comes with it. Just, just like people who don't make a stand have to catch a certain amount of slings and arrows. The person who decides they're going to make that stand has to be prepared for that as well. And um, he's facing a very formidable opponent and a loss. A loss really, I think, can set him back a little bit because I think he's rubbed a lot of people, not in the fans and the media, a little with the way he's been talking and how he's been acting. Yeah, he's definitely um, he's definitely drew a line in the sand, and he's uh, paying for that, for lack of a better term, with the way people are responding to him. He um, even just a few minutes ago, I was looking at a UFC Instagram post where he basically was saying that he's not going to talk about. GSP versus Bisbing at this point in time because he wants to focus on the fight that is in front of him. And while that's not an egregious comment, it's not, you know, it's not something that's, he's not spewing blasphemy about another fighter. The comments section would made you think that this guy just spit in a reference and like spit in his opponent's face, just the way the people responded back to him. And I think that he's put himself in that position, not just with the last few months, but even if you go all the way back to when he began calling himself the chosen one and when he began saying, you know, that he's destined to be a champion, destined to be this, that, and the other. While it is good for him to have that confidence in himself, I think that it's, um, it rubbed the wrong people. It rubbed people the wrong way from the very start. And now that he's being up and much more open and vocal about some of the treatments that he believes he's he's experienced in the sport, it's just completely turned people off. Well, I, I like to look at it from another point of view. I know, I think there are a lot of fans who, who are prejudiced racist. I think that goes, and I think, it, I think to a certain degree it can go to any race. But the thing about it is, even though he's catching a lot of flack, and a lot of people are turning against him. At the end, he's still kind of getting a little bit of what he wants because the biggest thing he wanted to do, he wanted to take the biggest fights. He wanted to get the biggest money. He wanted the biggest opportunity. Now he he knows he's not going to get the biggest fights because he's not. A, he knows he's not enough of a draw. Tyrone Willie's not a stupid guy. He knows he's not a draw. He knows he's not the kind of guy who puts people in seats. That's why he's looking for a money fight. But if you can't get a money fight, what's the next best thing you can do? You can turn whatever fight you're in you're involved in into a big event you can turn it into a money fight and all the and i and i'm sure he's speaking from the heart when he talks about prejudice and racism and things of that nature conor mcgregor predicts knockouts and says he's going to take someone's head off and tito says he's going to bury someone in a certain instance these conversations are having the same impact he's talking trash and he's drawing attention but he's doing it in another way and it's going to have an effect of for some it's going to make him a hero because there's certain people in the segment whether it's white, black, Hispanic, who are going to say he's calling it straight, he's being honest, he's right. There's a certain segment of people, white, black, Hispanic, whatever else, who are going to feel like he's being a baby, he's entitled, and he's the one who doesn't want to do his job as the welterweight champion. But either way, whether they like you or they love you, what happens to those people? Those people watch you. They watch you perform. They watch you see you win. And most likely, he's got a lot of people who are watching to see him lose. But if it turns into a big event, if it gets more buys, that, that impacts him. He's the champion. That helps his bottom line. If he can stir up some controversy, that helps his bottom line. If he can come out for speaking on the behalf of minorities who, aren't, who he feels aren't treated correctly in the UFC, that also helps expand his brand because no longer is he just a fighter. He's a guy speaking out on maybe a social injustice. He's a fighter who stands for more than just fighting. And once again, I'm not saying this isn't genuine, 
But there's a lot of, just like there's a lot of, there's a risk in him doing this, there's a huge benefit in him doing this as well, moving forward. If you understand what I'm saying, it makes him more than a fighter because he's calling out things that are reflected in our everyday, our everyday life, our everyday happening. Somebody of a, of a different race or someone who's different or someone who doesn't play to the crowd or doesn't fit in a certain box gets pushed aside or gets put behind other people because they play the game. And what's unfortunate about that is that, you know, you're definitely right. It does, it puts him in a position to have more of a promotional value to the UFC as a whole. Um, Unfortunately, it's almost as if it vilifies him at the same time. It's not, you know, that he's becoming, it's not that he's becoming more of a fan favorite because people are saying, oh, you know, he's making clear points. I see his side of the story. He's right. Let's band behind him and let's support him to, in being a positive representation of minorities in sports. It's not that. It's He's becoming popular because people are now going to be booing against him and hoping to see him lose simply because he is pointing out these um, racial injustice, injustices that he feels that he's gone through. And it that way. It might seem that. I think you're right, but the biggest thing about it is there's what like I agree with some of the points he makes, but I'm not a person who's going to go and scream from the mountaintops and get all over Twitter and write all these emails about how unfair it is. That's just not that's just not my tone. So there's I think he's got a segment of people building up who support him. Of course, like you said, there's just a larger segment of people who are against him. But even if those people are against him, that 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 somehow defines his character and defines his stance even more to some people. If you understand what I'm saying, like there's more people say like, look, he really is, he really is right. Look at these comments. He really is right. He he knows what he's talking about and in a certain backhanded kind of way, that kind of helps him because if everybody disagreed with his point and backed him up on it, because they'd be like, well, look, everybody's on your side. When people make those comments and come at him like that, that's when people have that aha moment. And whether they're on the side or not, it helps him self outside of a fighter. And I'm not saying, you know I'm not saying I can, get ugly. I can get with you on that because even myself, you know, I, before the Stephen Thompson fight, I kind of became more of a fan of Woodley's because I wanted to see him fight and win and see what he would say next because um, seeing how people were throwing immediately throwing their support behind um, Stephen Thompson I, I think I, I kind of did feel some type of way about it. it it's almost it almost seemed like people were when Woodley began saying you know he wanted he wanted a bigger name fight um, people were kind of shocked and like aghast that this guy is asking for a bigger name fight. Hell, this is his second title defense come Saturday. He still defended his belt more than Conor McGregor has defended either of his belts or either one of the titles that, he, that he's won. So like there's still that fact that, that's sitting out there. So um, I get I get the difference between the two. I'm not saying he's a huge, huge of a draw, but there still are facts behind the situation where I don't blame um, Woodley for his 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 for what he's done, um, but yeah, you're definitely right. He's I can honestly point to this situation and the way the lead up to UFC 205 went as probably the catalyst to what caused me to be a bigger fan of his. Yeah, the funny thing is, like, I don't feel like I don't feel sorry for 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 Thompson, but he seems like a genuinely like just a nice guy who wants to compete and fight. Like, he just seems like he just wants to fight. He wants a shot. He thinks he earned another one. He wants it. And it's like, he's got to answer these questions that I don't think he really wants to be engaged in answering, not because he's against it or not because he's for Tyron getting shortchanged, but he's just, he's a martial artist. He seems like a very nice person. 
and he's a human being and he just wants to compete compete and find his dreams now he's in the middle of this like this sort of um push and pull where if he speaks out if he speaks out he kind of gets put into that category of well look he's in on it too you know he's and, one of and what's really interesting about that what you just said is like if you look back to their original interview the one that was on um espn when willie started saying what he was saying and voicing his opinion the look on Stephen Thompson's face was a look of I what I believe to be genuine confusion because he doesn't understand where Willie was coming from and in, 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 in the interviews to follow he said that he doesn't see it he doesn't get it and being a straight white male you probably won't get it when a minority is telling you about the injustices that they face because you don't see that and I think that that was a prime opportunity in which everyone witnessed a straight white male listening and I think being honestly earnestly open to listening to what the minority was saying to him and not having the ability to comprehend what was being said just because of he just because of the fact that he doesn't go through it on a daily basis I'm not saying that to denigrate Stephen Thompson in any way I'm just saying it because that's kind of part of the fact that you see um, cool. when you have these types of conversations well, you're, you're right in that. And it's like, but I always tell people because I, I've gone to an all-white school, I went to all-black school. I, I've been around a lot of different races. Most people have. There's always going to be some instance of some, an experience that somebody's gone through that you have no idea. If some girl talks talks to me about certain things she's been through, I have no idea. There's black people I talk to who have no idea what I've gone through. They tell me, well, this is what I went through and I fit, and I felt they were being hard on me. And I'm like, do you know the situation I came up with? What you're talking about really isn't anything to me. So the, the weird thing is, he really can't say anything because, I mean, I really think he doesn't understand. I don't think he gets it because he's not that kind of person. Maybe he's not around those kind of people, or maybe he's just never been exposed to it. But it's like, it's kind of like, I put it like this, like if you were, if I was applying for, I'll put myself in, if I'm applying for this job and then I'm, I'm against this, this woman and we're competing for this job and then she brings up the fact that they might be sexist and that's why they're not getting a job, I'm going to feel confused because I might not, not know where she's going from. And to a certain level, I might feel a little offended or insulted because it's in somehow insinuating that I'm not getting the job because I don't, that I'm getting the job because I'm a guy and not because I deserve it. And I think Thompson feels a little bit of that, like, oh, he's an entitled, he's the typical white guy. They're getting behind him. And he's like, look at my record. Look at what I've done. I'm not getting this match because someone gave me a favor. Look at the fight. It was a close yeah. fight. It was a draw. Mm -hmm. But now the situations come up and it's just, it's a really tough one to be in, especially if that's not, that's not your forte. And, and no offense, we both know this. If you're a white person, you don't have too much to say in these situations. You really can't say much. Yeah, you, you should really definitely can't. be in a listening position. Um, that's not, that's that's kind of a conversation for another day, because oftentimes it is very it's, it, it is difficult to listen to a situation where you're the you listen to a conversation where you're the minority, or excuse me, where you're the majority being told about the injustices that you may inadvertently unknowingly place against the minority like I, I think back to when um my girlfriend and i would have my ex-girlfriend and i would have conversations and she would let me know her stance on feminism in different situations within that and listening to the conversations like man i didn't know that i could be doing x y and z making her feel like x y and z without you know just because I, i'm a man and just because i behave the way i do so it is it is an interesting conversation. It's the weirdest thing. I remember, I actually saw this on Twitter. I can't remember the exact quote, but a, a person was saying that 
and, and I re understood this, it's like anybody who gets questioned about the validity of how they feel or what they've gone through or, or somebody makes it seem like you have it easier or you didn't have it tough too, it makes another person defensive. You know, if you come from a nice neighborhood and you know, you have other people who came from bad neighborhoods saying you, you had it all easy, blah, blah, blah. The first thing you want to do is tell them what challenges you went through to establish, I had it tough too. I had to work through some stuff too. And the thing that, the issue that gets caught up when it becomes a race or gender issue is that people take it as, you're saying that I didn't go through anything. And what people are actually saying, black people aren't saying to white people, you didn't go through anything. They're saying you didn't go through as much as I do. I'm sure you went through it, through stuff because every human being does stuff that I go through because of skin color and the same thing with gender you might have gone through some prejudice and some abuse but as a woman more because of how women are viewed or physical advantages men have over women it doesn't mean you didn't go through anything because that's the first defense everybody has well i've been through stuff too i, I understand that i'm gone through you're not going through what i'm going through and that's the hard that's the hard part to separate because it's like someone's challenging your validity challenging your credibility or challenge challenging your experiences and nobody likes that I'm a, I'm a very calm person. I handle it. I don't get as bothered, but as a human being, you would get bothered. You know, like I said, in that situation, somebody says, oh, well, you got this job because you're black. You'd be offended. You'd be like, I got this job because I'm, I'm good enough for it. Yeah, definitely. definitely. It's so, um, interesting, man. We've been sitting here talking for 20 minutes already about this, and we haven't even touched upon the fight itself. So let's go ahead and let, let, let's swing the conversation back to the thing that's actually brought us together. Looking at this main event here, um, what do you think is going to happen, man? Again, Woodley's the underdog for the eighth time in eight straight fights. Um, do you think that this is a fight that plays out more like everyone assumed the first fight would play out with Thompson being elusive and able to hit Woodley and finish him? Or is Woodley going to be able to get the job done this time after having um, Stephen Thompson really hurt in the fourth round and in the first of their UFC 205 fight. I'd say the thing about Woodley, a lot of people keep saying it's weird that he keeps getting, but I'm like, if you look at the skills he's shown, not, not the physical ability, not the knockouts, not the toughness, but if you look at the actual skills he's shown in the cage, you would be almost right to think he's going to be the underdog because he, he's shown a very limited skill set in what he's done. It's essentially, he sits and waits, he throws a low output of shots, he uses an occasional takedown, he uses feints, and he uses essentially big counters to score wins. That's that's what he does. And most of his wins has been landing the big right hand, following up. It's been feigning guys and controlling them with with, with the the threat of his athleticism and his power. He hasn't been showing like a lot of dynamic, diverse striking. He hasn't shown really super clean defense and counters. He hasn't shown any of that. He's got like a like a, a really set game plan and he applies that very intelligently and very patiently. But he hasn't shown anything where people are just like, oh my God, like how do you beat this guy? You know, he hasn't really shown that that width, that that width and depth and skills he's applied. So I get why people consider him the underdog all the time, because you haven't seen very much that says otherwise. He's a wrestler who's got great power and great timing. And he hasn't he hasn't shown great kicking, he hasn't shown great submissions, he hasn't shown over the period of three to five rounds. He's never shown that. So I get why people think he's gonna be the underdog. I think he has shown um, great kicking. I mean, remember, it, it was leg kicks that kind of that softened up um, Carlos Condit and caused that uh, TKO loss. I, I've seen it in spots, but it's like, you know, when you see a... Uh, I think he does get away with it. He does get away from it, though. Excuse me. 
Yeah, that, that's the thing. You see flashes of it, just like the, the takedown in the first fight. He scored that takedown, and he said, well, the reason I didn't go for another takedown is because I just got caught up in the moment. I wanted to finish with his hands. That may be true. I don't believe that. I believe he didn't go for another takedown because he's very explosive and it takes a lot of energy. And if he he burns a lot of energy down or having to get his head back up from the takedown, and even if he gets it, there's a lot of energy holding someone down. I personally think he can't wrestle someone hard or a whole round much three. So the reason he doesn't go for takedowns a lot is because of the energy it takes. I don't think it's because he doesn't want to because he showed a clear advantage in that fight with the takedown. The takedown is what changed the fight. Once he had that takedown to get the ground to pound, Thompson didn't want to open up anymore. He didn't want to take any chances for fear of getting taken back down and punished for it. That's very true. I can agree with you on that there. And you can man, and you can manhandle him. Why not do that again? I mean, if you if you know you can take someone down and submit them, and you take them down the first time, and and you're d- dominating them, why do you go and exchange hands with them? If exchanging hands is 50-50, why not go to the area where you have a 80-20 advantage? Why would you Why would you ignore that? So, how do you see this this second fight uh, playing out? Um, I really think I, I I really think that Woodley kind of fought the perfect fight the first time. I, I really think he did he did more. He showed more than I expected. I mean, I still felt like he got tired. I still felt like he didn't go to the wrestling as much as he could have. But he actually flashed it and used it and did huge amounts of damage. It. So I essentially don't know what else Woodley could do more to win the fight. To be honest, I, I think if he starts using the kicks and starts trying to be Fancy on the ground with the submission. I don't think he can finish the submissions. I don't think his kicking game is going to do anything except get him countered or um, or picked apart. So essentially, I, I expect to see Woodley to do more of what he did the first time, just not make the strategical mistakes of going for a submission when he could have just finished it out with strikes or maybe using the wrestling more. I don't really know that he's going to do anything different because under in tough fights, goes back to his bread and butter, which is those big counters and those explosive moments of offense. He's not a consistently busy guy. So I, I see him doing the same thing he did before. Thompson's a guy who I think has more room to adjust. I think Thompson's going to have confidence from taking that beating. He knows he can take that punishment now. So now he feels like, I can take his best shot. I've already taken it. So now I'm going to open up and show him everything, show him all the tools. If I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose getting stretched. I'm not going to let him, let him control the fight with these big moments of offense. I'm going to start putting it on him. I'm going to start creating opportunities to counter him, and I'm going to overwhelm him with all them. So, then you basically just answered my um, second question here. Like, what do you, th- how do you see Thompson kind of growing in, growing from the first fight to the second fight? Should I alert to you guys that I'm here right now? Uh, <laughs> yes, you should. Thank you. I appreciate that, Steve. We, we got so ingrained into the conversation that we actually didn't um, even see you join in. How are you doing? No what are you doing sneaking up on black folk? Don't you know better than that? <laughs> I was trying to be be good, but I was like, man, uh, just uh, go church behavior as opposed to like, you know, modern <laughs> school behavior. <laughs> My apologies, man. My apologies. Definitely thank you for joining. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, Stephen Wright is going to be joining us tonight to have a strong conversation about MMA, man. We're going to be talking about a couple of different topics there. I want to thank Shawan again for using his connections to get you in on the show. So I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. No problem. Twitter, uh, Twitter connects us all, I guess. It really does. It really does. Um, if you could do me a favor, flip off your, your camera so we can make sure that we stay on the highest bandwidth. I don't want you to get cut out at, at all. 
No problem. Let me figure out how to do that because this thing is it new to me. Should be an icon if you go up to the, like right above like the circle where it shows you someone is talking. The camera is right in the middle. Just click on it and it should turn red. All right. Uh, did it. There you go. Good. All right. So, um, Shawan, as usual, man, I'm going to let you drive the conversation here, man, because um, I, I definitely love hearing you and our guests go back and forth and ping pong off of each other. So let's see what you got, man. Go ahead and start from wherever you would like to pick. Okay. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you again, Stephen, for coming on the show. Um, and just a, a little side note. I was always on Twitter breaking out fights and stuff, and Steven was one of the first people who actually contacted me and was like, hey, you got a good eye. You think like a coach. You should really like want to do a show. You want to do vlogs. You want to work with fighters. You really should make an effort to do that. And I just wanted to be one of the people who encouraged you to do that because somebody encouraged me, so I wanted to be a guy who encouraged you. So he's one of the main reasons I'm doing a show like this or I do some of the stuff that I do outside of the show, like working with fighters or and breaking out fights and things of that nature. So I want to thank you, first of all, Steven, very much for that. No problem. That makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, my kids, my kids are pretty excited. They're like, "Wait, he coaches in the UFC, and he thinks you have. He thinks you're smart." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not an idiot." <laughs> but, but um, uh, Stephen, I wanted to actually talk about. We were talking about the Thompson Woodley rematch, and thing is, when you when you were coaching Johnny, when he got the welterweight championship, you had to have a rematch with Lawler. So I wanted to think, take have you take us through what the coach is doing in rematches with this when it's a fairly quick turnaround for a fight and you got to fight a guy who, who you had a very fight with how do you how do you stand at how do you set that up how do you reignite the fire in your your fighter to prepare for that well i guess the the main rules for me is uh you want to build on what you had success with in the first fight and then you want to try to take away the moments of success that you gave up in the first fight so I would say the biggest rule of thumb as far as uh, uh, what you could do wrong is if you could try to, if you spend your camp trying to predict someone's adjustments, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Uh, you should never worry about that part, in particular if the identity of the fighter is what got them the offense. So, for example, uh, George St. Pierre, he, you know, uh, when he loses to Matt Serra, his identity is still a jab and double A guy. So when he came out in fight number two, he didn't go out there thinking, all right, well, if I do this, this, and this, uh, you know, I'll be able to hit, get here and so on, whatever. He went out there and said, you know what? I didn't go to game plan number one fast enough. I didn't get myself into my double leg fast enough. So I'll go ahead and do that, and then I'll make Sarah figure out how to get up. But I'm going to get into my offense quicker, but I'm not going to change who my identity is. So as these two guys go into it, they're probably thinking, you know what I am. Where did we have success? How do we build on that success? And uh, how do we take away what we gave up before? So if I'm in, you know, uh, Woodley's camp, as soon as I got him on his back, he stayed on his back. You know, I scored big, strong ground and pound. He didn't uh, he didn't rock my base with butterfly hooks. He didn't uh, come up on a single. He didn't, you know, trap my head and then kick away once I gave separation. He didn't do anything to get himself up to his feet. He kind of played a, a guard game, and then I was able to score big offense, posture up, and score even bigger. And then also I know if I'm patient enough, I'm going to find my shot. If, I, if, I, if, I, if we keep walking each other down, if we're both throwing our punches the hardest, I'm going to win as far as that power thing goes. So I think that that's going to build the confidence there. And, of course, uh, uh, if you're Wonder Boy, it's simple. First of all, no low kicks. You're probably not going to throw one low kick all fight. Uh, if you throw a kick, it's going to be at the head. Or, um, you know, you're going to do it like more teep style, a jumping kick style, something high. It's not going to be anything that you think can get caught because uh, you don't want to give up something that can be earned. So make sure you keep, continue to uh, – 
play the boxing because what people don't realize is you know for me the thing that makes wonder boy good isn't the karate style like it isn't the the spinning kicks and that kind of stuff it's his boxing his boxing and his length make him so so difficult he's he can exchange in between really really well uh he's got a good eye for it and then because of that point style of karate that he played he knows how to touch and get out touch and get out but the like the spinning kicks and that kind of stuff i think woodley will be ready for that because he was ready for it in the, the last fight like he, he handled that well so I guess those are the two things that I would say looking at both parties going into this fight um, uh, because that's pretty much what I did. Johnny's had success with combinations and low kicks in the fight. First fight in the rematch, we did the same. The only thing was uh, the weight cut, you know, affected us in the later rounds in round five. And then Robbie had, you know, what I call the sexy shots. He was able to score, um, you know, like he scored a teeth to Johnny's face in like the second round, I want to say. And then um, he had that moment in the first 30 seconds where he just came out through a bunch of knees. So people remembered those moments, but we still won the steady kickboxing, I felt, in both fights. Uh, it's just that we weren't able to get the cards in the second one. So I guess that's what these two gentlemen are thinking right now. Uh, how do we put rounds away? Um, how do I get into those moments that I have a success a lot earlier? And then how do I not give up what I gave up before? Yeah, the weird thing about it is every time I see fighters, it, it, it's like my question becomes, how do you stroke that balance between being confident and not being and being too overconfident? Because often guys will be like, I had this moment in the fight and I knew I almost had him. I think that's good to build that confidence of fighter. And they have to feel that way fact of the matter is they didn't finish in that moment so you have to be aware that your opponent has something more to offer a lot of times when i hear fighters talking it's in these absolutes and i'm like are you giving are you giving your opponent enough respect for what they did to shut some of the shut what you did down like tyron woodley can say i had these huge moments but usually when he has those huge moments guys go away when he hits them like that they go away wonder boy didn't go away you know and and unlike a lot of guys who get hit like that wonder boy was able to come right back out push him across the cage because Woodley, he's really good on those entries with those feints, but on those exits, you're good. He backs straight up. And if you put volume on him, you can really take advantage of that. So yeah, as a coach, do you, how do you rein that in? How do you tell them that balance so they don't get too overconfident in what they did? By the time they're at the championship level, you know what you've got. You know, so uh, if you're dealing with somebody first few fights in the UFC, then you probably got to do some reining in, you know, sometimes where you uh, got to say, all right, hold on, slow down, that kind of deal here and so on, whatever. But people who get there, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't tell Conor McGregor to stop talking. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he's it's who he would got him to the dance and he only knows being that kind of confident in himself. So. When I have guys get overconfident and talk, I, I pretty much got to let interview talk be what it is because you, you should understand that when these guys, um, when they do, like the guys who are going to be in the press conference tomorrow, between the podcast, between uh, radio show interviews, TV interviews, local and international, and the MMA media, they're getting asked the same question a lot. And sometimes the answer that people gravitate towards is just the one that's the fullest. And sometimes that has a little bit more confidence than not in it. But most of these times it comes down to who executes on fight day, no matter what you say. So um, for me, uh, if it makes someone do something out of their character, then you have to worry a little bit. Uh, but sometimes the moment does it. You know, like uh, I, an example I always bring up to people, it's I think that Eddie Alvarez had one minute of success doing what I believe their game plan was. If you re if you rewatch his fight with Conor McGregor, watch the last minute of the first round. He plays a lot of just single kick moments, like a lot of, you know, single kick, hook kick, simple, simple. 
and he didn't give Connor anything. Like he didn't give Connor any moments to to play the counter, uh, that kind of deal, whatever, for that one minute. So I said on Twitter, I was like, he found something in the last minute. That was his game plan. But I'm telling you, when the lights are on and the crowd's loud and you just got the title because you landed that one big shot, it's hard to stay composed. And I think that that's the toughest part. And sometimes it has nothing to do with coaching staff. It's just the moment. And I think in that moment, because he was like, man, it's, it's too slow working the way that I was working before. If I just catch him with one of these, he's going to be in bad shape. And the next thing you know, he's missing with right hands. Uh, he's overextending and counter just or counter will eat you up. So I, I think I'd be more worried if the round one language suggested different than what we prepared for in, the, in, in our game plan. But um, as far as before the fight, I pretty much got to let that talk come and go because you you really you never know. You never know what you got. Uh, you don't know, and sometimes athletes, they need that kind of confidence. They need that. You need to think you're invincible in this game, even if you're not. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. As I've actually, like I, said, I often say, I've, I've worked with some guys before, and it's like I found it odd that some points they're contacting you just for, like, reassurance. Not that they don't have confidence, but they want to hear that extra, you know, you can finish this guy, you got this over this guy, you can do this to this guy. Not, not that they're ignoring the whole plan altogether, but – they're looking for that reassurance in that area of strength they have, or even in that area of the weakness. Like, yeah, he got you. He might be able to get you here, but I believe you can get out of this spot. I believe you can turn it around at this point of the fight. So it, I know it's a lot of mental stuff. Um, my biggest question would be, as a, once again, as a trainer, how much, like, a lot of trainers don't like to have rematches. They like to have the fight go and move on to the next thing. Is it very? Is it is it more stressful for the trainer because now that person's got a second look at you, and when you have certain attributes like a like a unique style or a high level amount of athleticism, the first go around people aren't really acclimated to it. The second time they have an idea of what you you're, you have like kind of like Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey when they fought. The first time Misha had no idea what Ronda could do, how strong she was, how explosive. The second fight she did much better because she knew what Ronda had to offer: that explosiveness, that strength, that power. It wasn't as big a shock to her. She had some answers for it. I believe if they would have fought a third time, she would have solved that riddle. But when you have a rematch so soon, you don't have a lot of time to put in new things or to even address the weaknesses you had before. So as a coach, is that extra stress, extra, extra stressful for you? No, you don't have that, that coming in anymore? Well, you know, it's different because I, I did think that um, – you know, Misha said after that second fight that he was she was surprised that Ronda was able to score right hands, you know, because Ronda got better in that time period. Uh, didn't, you know, uh, still um, a long way to go, but she offered some movement. She offered some boxing that she didn't offer in the first fight. And I think Misha just realized if I throw a lot of punches, she's not used to a lot of punches coming at her. This ain't Mitts. You know, I'm just going to keep coming at her. I think Misha was able to score when she kind of threw the flurries, but I didn't think she had anything on those punches other than just the aggression of moving forward. But it kept getting her into body lock positions and she kept, you know, ended up on her back and working off her back. Uh, I think I would have been curious to see the third fight just because um, I really wanted to know what it was like or what it would have looked like um, if she were able to get into range, box, and then move a little bit. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's in the past now. But the the difference in athletes and then the, the fact that you've done it before, you expect to do it again comes into play. So, you know, once Misha was would find herself in those bad spots in the ground, how did she respond there? Because Misha's never been, you know, great about getting off of her back. She usually plays on her back when she goes down there. So, so it does come into play. As far as rematches go, 
um, I come from kickboxing. Like, that's my background. So kickboxing, Muay Thai, I'm just used to rematches. I'm used to uh, growing up and seeing my heroes, you know, Ernesto Hoos and Peter Arts fight a lot. You know, I'm, I'm used to, uh, if there is, you know, K1 literally had a cards called Revenge where they would put two people who, you know, fought and there was a victory of one side or the other, and then they'd have a rematch, a whole card full of rematches. So that's where I grew up. Um, so when those offers come, they don't bother me. Now, clearly, when you're building your resume, you want as many names on it as you can. So when Johnny won the title, we would have preferred to fight like a Matt Brown right away just because Matt Brown was hot at the time, and you want to kind of beat somebody who, who also has some recognition. We ended up beating Matt Brown the fight after that, but it was – the buzz wasn't the same, you know, the, the, it was, it was all just a little bit different. So for me, I've got no problem as far as the rematch thing goes. Um, uh, but because as you can see with Bisping, you know, getting the GSP news earlier today, Bisping's legacy now looks like it is 46 year old. Uh, and then the returning, you know, 170 pound champion, you know, from three years gone, moving up in weight class. So he's not going against Romero. He's not going against, um, uh, Jacare, and if he were to win close, don't rule out him asking for a rematch. It's a different game now. People ask for money now, and they want to put themselves in those opportunities. Um, it's definitely uh, uh, there used to be a period of time where, like boxing, our MMA would look down on boxing because they have all those alphabet titles. Now we have all these interim titles, which are just the same as alphabet titles. So it's like when you look at how rematches are, they definitely play into how the culture of MMA is now. So uh, unless you're Demetrius Johnson taking on all people, all comers, a lot of these guys are still looking for the best payday, and that might be in a rematch. So I, I guess it's kind of um, uh, preparing, like me preparing for it. I've got no problem with it because, because of where I come from. But the culture of today's fighting means that either you're going to see it or you're not, and it has nothing to do with styles. Okay. Definitely, that's that's definitely a unique take on it. A lot of guys I've talked to say they they often they they just don't like the idea of rematches, especially whether it's a draw or anything. They like to just go on to the next one. I've kind of gotten the impression that they feel that there's a better chance of that guy figuring them out on the second go round. They like to just kind of get their business done and move on to the next challenge. And they nobody's actually come out and said that into the concerns or issues they start having or the things they start talking about as far as their strategy. It becomes clear. Turns that the gap may have been closed, or the advantage they had no longer exists it, it, at the level it did before, because that person has that personal experience, which changes how effective you are moving forward. Unless, unless you made those big changes. So that that's actually an answer I've never heard before. So thank you for that. No problem. Um, <laughs> I, I actually wanted to um, talk a little bit. Um, we've talked about this before a little bit on Twitter. Um, as being a trainer, there's not many. We don't we don't often see a lot of trainers. Um, how do I put this politically correctly? We don't see many African-American trainers very often. Mm. And, and mostly we actually see the same, I don't know, probably the same four, three to five guys in the majority of um, corners for most MMA fighters. And I, I just wanted to get kind of your your opinion on why that is. Because it, it, from my opinion, it seems like people read, I, I've been to gyms before and I'll talk to people and they'll be like, well, I'm going to go train at Jackson's. I'm going to go over here. And, and those are all great camps, Hume's camps, Jackson's, ATC. But it's like everybody just spits out the same stuff I read in articles. I'm like, have you ever known anybody who's trained there? Have you talked to the coaches? Have you talked to the fighters? And they're just like, no, but, you know, so-and-so is a great strategist. So-and-so is a great stand-up guy. And, and I'm, I'm 
But if you kind of look at it objectively, you see where that person has limitations and flaws. And you don't know why that guys who are doing this as a career instantly just want to go the same place everybody else is going and, and assume that's going to fix their problems or address whatever issues they're having. So as a trainer, why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't see as much exposure from a variety of coaches or maybe a variety of coaches from different different backgrounds? Well, you know, I would definitely say, first of all, the culture of MMA is still birthed from Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, so, and for those who are wondering the uh, difference between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and what I would consider Japanese style Jiu-Jitsu, Japanese style is more more open, and I'd say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is definitely guard play Jiu-Jitsu, like its base is there. Uh, not saying that they don't have every tool, I'm just saying that its base seems to be uh, around there. Uh, you know, um, uh, responses and playing from the guard. So. Because of that, you're going to have a you know culture of people. Um, so let's look at Holland, for example. The reason why Holland is hot for kickboxing was because in the 70s, Tom Harnink and Jan Paws and certain guys went down to to Thailand, uh, you know, with the karate style, and then they all lost. And then they were like, well, we got to get better. We're going to stay. So he stayed for a few extra months. And then they realized they had more success with the boxing and with the low kicks because the Thai score, the body kick, the strongest. And they, they score the clinch and the elbows the stronger. So all of a sudden, just add some years to that and you get the Dutch kickboxing style. But on top of that, you know, uh, um, you get guys to go travel and fight and have success uh, internationally and so on. And there's a group of kids that grow up and see that on TV. And if you grow up and you see it on TV, you want to be it one day. So, you know, we get uh, K-1 down the road with guys like Remy Bonjowski, Badahari, who grew up watching certain people on TV. In that way, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu had, you know, Hoist Gracie and then other guys from, you know, uh, Brazil go over to Pride and, you know, in some cases UFC, make a lot of money and get a lot of exposure. So because of that, a lot of people are going to gravitate towards a coach that has a, a, a big time background in grappling. So that's one, you know, one side of it is why you'll see a lot more Brazilians tend to want to go to a place where there are other Brazilian coaches. So that's why you got Novo Inhaus really doing their thing in Brazil, a couple other dims there, but then ATT because they are seen as they're seen as like the feeder system. Like you come in here, I'm sure they got guys that help you with visas, guys that help you with housing. They've got a lot of stuff in that situation. So that is why ATT will be hot and will be known. Black Zillions, same thing. Some of those guys broke off of ATT. Uh, and then at the same time, um, uh, Rashad Evans using Tyrone's bunk for help, coaching came together. And then next thing you know, Black Zillions are formed despite what's happening now. That's kind of how they came together. So add that part of it and then of course the other part of it is who has the resources to open gyms and have gyms run successfully and uh sometimes it's just timing so diego sanchez was really the main fighter for jackson back in the day but he gets in the ultimate fighter dominates the ultimate fighter then all of a sudden uh you know you start coaching the ultimate fighter you get around athletes and it's a great way for you to build your gym you say hey you know come out train with me yada 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 that kind of deal whatever uh not to mention the homegrown athletes you're already working with and then it helps you that every time you watch TV, it's like a commercial for them every single time. The uh, especially because Goldberg, um, Goldberg's not really a research guy as far as looking up the athletes. He's more like your TV spot guy. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, uh, you, this product brought to you by Zion's or that kind of deal, whatever. So he's gonna just say the same names every single time. Oh, this person goes to this gym. 
and they'll mention the same names in MMA every single time, the people who were there right when it kind of started. So for anybody new, any kind of coach, it's a little bit tougher. So Mark Henry's starting to get a little bit of love in the last few years, and uh, it's because guys like Errol Hawani are kind of putting the effort into saying their name aloud. But anybody new coming in, it's you've got to be in the corner enough for them to recognize you and follow up. Like, like Anik knows who I am, you know? Um, you know, Stan knows who I am. But for the most part, a lot of different, you know, like uh, Rogan might know me from sight, but we've never really kind of had like, you know, long conversation together. But he'd still say if I'm in the corner, he'd still say Johnny Hendricks corner. But if Mark Lehman's in the corner, he'd say Mark Lehman because Mark's been there for a long time. So now I haven't worked with Mark for a while, uh, but he still has that history. And ATT's got that history and AKA's got that history. There's nothing any new coach can do about that. If you're going to build your own team, you're going to get more more fighters in. You just got to get yourself to where you're working USC fight like every month. And then that's your best way to do it. And the problem, of course, as I said before, because they're like a commercial every time a UFC guy goes out there uh, for those gyms, it is a commercial for their gym. It's a commercial to have, um, oh, so-and-so is going to Jackson's gym. It helps them so much. Uh, so that's why there's like Russian fighters who use all their money to go over to Albuquerque and train at Jackson's, not knowing anything about it, not knowing if the style fits them. All they know is that Jackson is world-class because TV has been telling it for the five, for the past five years. Not to mention Jackson has been in this game for a long time. He knows what he's doing, but I'm just saying it's always going to be harder for new people to break in. There's a reason why it's like the same NFL coaches. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just, this isn't a uh, MMA specific thing. It's like the same coaches in almost every sport. So Eventually, you know, I'm hoping, you know, I get more athletes in and they start saying my name a little bit more. Of course, it's going to help my brand. But as far as my knowledge in the sport, the time I put into it, uh, the, the skill I believe that I can teach, I feel like uh, I don't look at anybody in the world and say they're better than me. I mean, I'm ready to compete with those guys. But you've got to build the athletes from scratch if you can't get the migration. So that's kind of where I am now. See, and the, the problem with that is with I understand. See. You watch other sports. I watch other sports. A lot of MMA, a lot of MMA fans just watch mixed martial arts. The hardcore fans. But the thing is, in football, even in basketball, they might have the same coaches and retreads. But the fans are smart enough. Like most people have played basketball or football at some kind of level, so they understand it past the platonic level. My, he's competed in MMA, and he he trains people. He's worked with fighters. I've never competed, but I've trained. I've sparred with pros. I've I've helped coach people. So I, under, I I get it. I don't know that I don't know that fans get it because I don't don't know I don't know how much they know about the action. I hate to say this, but I don't know how many fighters are actually students of the game. I, I've talked to a few fighters. Um, one we, we you and me both know, King Mo. King Mo's a student of the game. You can yes. the reason me and him get along is because you can go back and forth over little t tiny subtle aspects of the of the boxing game, the wrestling game, the grappling game, putting it all together. But I've talked to other fighters. And they literally only do what their coach tells them. They don't have any concept of strategy or controlling the or the flow of a fight or different kind of counters or setups. It's like one, two, three is what they know, and that's all they do. They don't have any sort of concept of what's going on outside of their own sphere of influence. So if fighters would know better, but a lot of fighters don't. And I don't mean that they're they're not intelligent. They just they don't pay attention to the game to the level that athletes in other sports do. Tom Brady knows football in and out. LeBron James does football, does basketball in and out. Some of the best fighters in the UFC don't know fighting in and out. They know they're fighting, but they don't know fighting as a whole. And some of the guys coming in, I see them with these camps. 
in some of the game plans they have and some of the execution I see, and it, it, it seems like either the camp's not doing their job or the fighter has a huge issue with cage IQ because they can't seem to figure out what to do in, in certain spots. And it's costing them fights, or even if they're winning, it's having them take a huge amount of damage as a result. So I think a lot of the issue is just a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding of the finer points and the different styles within mixed martial art. And I don't mean just like striking or grappling. I mean like the different styles of, sh- of striking, the boxer puncher, the counter guy, the lead guy, the volume guy. I've talked to a lot of guys in gyms and, and they don't even know what I'm talking about. They're, they're looking at me like I'm like I'm like I'm speaking another language. You know, it's weird that you're bringing that up because for me, it just started with I fell in love with the sport. It starts there for me, you know, uh, um, and again, my dream was to fight in K1 and I wasn't able to accomplish my dream. Uh, you know, we just ran out of kickboxing. It just dried up in the two, you know, mid 2000s. And and then the opportunities that K1 had were smaller and smaller. And then, of course, you get contracts like what kind of what Gloria had with with Overeem. And then that that contract included like four other guys that was on their roster. And and it's just harder to get the spots got more difficult to get a hold of. So um, for me, I fell in love with the sport and I wanted to pursue it full, but it didn't, you know, the opportunities didn't work out for me. So when I went into coaching, um, you know, which just kind of happened on a whim, you know, uh, I had already come from that and I had already been a big film junkie who I don't just break this stuff down because I like, you know, I, I'm doing it for work. I love combat sports. I love it. I can't wait for a Garcia Thurman. I can't wait for to you know talk on my podcast about the kickboxing events between k1 and glory that just went down this past weekend like i love it it's what i love to do and um i don't think that it necessarily equates success uh you know because you could know all that stuff and not win you know uh you could be as a junkie like me and, and not win but at the same time you know these athletes who are out there uh, out here right now. I definitely think that it would help their game, but I also understand that a lot of them just kind of leave things to their coaches. I've got a mixed bag in my team. Johnny Hendricks, if I could put film in front of him, he'll like break it down and he'll have a great understanding. He reads things so well, but on his own, he doesn't really think to look at film. You know, uh, if he's invited to a UFC event to sit in the crowd. He'll, he'll be able to pick things apart and he'll explain things to you that you didn't see at all. But on his own, he won't sit down and, and, and watch anything. So there are fighters who come up to him and ask him, you know, shake his hand, tell him he's awesome, that kind of stuff, whatever. They'll have like eight fights in the UFC and he'll have no idea who they are. It's just who he is. You know, he just doesn't pay attention to it. Uh, another one of my UFC fighters, Abdul Al-Hassan, he hates looking at film because it'll make him think about what his opponent's doing and not what he's going to do. So he'll just tell me to tell him what to do. And he goes out there and does it. And, you know, we've had success so far. So I have that. And then I've got a guy, Mark De La Rosa, who's up and coming from, for, from me, who's 8-0, uh, fights at, you know, um, you know, 135 and 125. And this kid, the moment he gets a fight, he puts a picture of that person winning in his phone. So that every time he looks at the phone, he sees them with their hand raised. And it's motivation for him. He watches all their fights over and over. He can tell you what they're going to do, when they're going to do it. He's just different. So I think that every fighter gets up for it differently. Now, you're always going to be better off. I grew up wanting to be a football player. Uh, and I watched football. You know, I, I watched it all the time. So you're always going to be better off watching the greats. I loved Bobby Taylor. I loved Raheem Ishmael. I, I mean, I loved uh, j- just guys, Deion Sanders, Rod Woodson. I loved these guys who played corner and receiver. So I watched and I learned from them. You are always going to be at a benefit if you sit down, you watch Sugar Ray Leonard, 
uh, you know, Ray Robinson, um, you know, I wouldn't say Ali because you got to be a certain kind of athlete to be Ali, you know, yeah. but uh, Ali's like a, he's like a Roy Jones, yeah, athletic. Yeah, exactly. But like um, uh, a Winky Wright, you know, um, uh, Jermaine Taylor, you may not like everything about him, but he had a really good jab. He's a really good athlete and he fought everybody there was to fight. You say one thing about Jermaine Taylor. If you look at his record, you go, hey, I can't think of too many big names. He didn't fight. I mean, he lost, but. He went out there, you know, he went against those guys. So you can always learn from these athletes and it will always add to your game. It will never take from your game. So that's the main reason why I would suggest people do it. But you are 100 percent right. There is a community of people who they only want to be involved with their fights and nothing else. Yeah, I, I, I always find if you listen to our show before and Raphael will tell you this, I get frustrated a little bit with the fighters, but I really take it in. As a corner man, you can you can address this with me. I'm pretty hard on corners, not because I don't understand how difficult it is. I, I have friends who corner boxing, amateur. I've actually sat in on some corners. I mean, I, I've done. I get all that, but I feel like if you're if a fighter's underneath you, it's your job to get them the best tools and the best avenues to victory. And if they're going to lose, which you don't want to do, you won't want to give them the skills where they can defend themselves, where they're not taking huge amounts of punishment, where their their career doesn't turn in the opposite direction and I feel like a lot of coaches are getting by on the athleticism of their their fighters and getting by on a brand name that they have from a point when maybe they were on the cutting edge of MMA so I I, I call out a lot of corners because I, I feel like I feel like they're not addressing things I feel like preparing for a fight you need to be working on all the other skills the fight is the fight training is for a specific opponent when you don't have a fight plan, you're supposed to be working on everything. If your wrestling's a little weak, your transitions are a little weak, if you don't know how to work a basic jab, if you don't know how to body punch, if you don't know how to counter, those are things you should be working on in the meantime until you get a fight. And then you kind of funnel it in and focus on that specific opponent. And I feel like a lot of gyms and a lot of fighters, a lot of gyms don't do that. And a lot of fighters can ask for it. They're leaving it in their coach's hands and their coaches aren't doing their job. Their coaches, in my opinion, aren't doing right by them giving them all the skills they can to win if not win at least not get ruined in a fight because there's some guys who lose fights you can lose a fight and then you can lose a fight and third guys have lost fights and they've never been the same because they didn't know how to effectively slip punches they didn't know how to pivot they didn't know how they didn't know when to go for a takedown to avoid the punishment there pivot off the fence and turn someone else this simple basic things that everybody should know they have no idea how to do but they're with the camp that's taking their money Going using their name to get in business. So I feel like as to the fighters, you owe it to the fighters to give them to make them the best version of themselves and to protect them from themselves and from their opponents. Yeah, I guess for me in the corner, I usually break it down in three ways. Number one, uh, you know, there's usually me and one other person talking. So it's either the Tony Cabello's boxing coach in this area. He and I work a lot of corners together. That's my guy. I'll work with Tony Cabello until I die. So when we're in the corner, uh, and I also had this when I worked with Mark Lehman, I usually talked first and Lehman usually talked second. So I knew I had a certain amount of time to you know, get off the information that I had before I let Mark take over. So literally when I get in, I usually say deep breath and I give him some water. And then I make it clear, this is where you're having offense of success. If we're getting hit, I'll say, this is where you're getting hit. This is how you take away from it. And then number three, this is what we need to do right now. This is where we're having success. This is how we're, you know, these are the things that are having success against us. This is how we take those things away and have success ourselves. So I need to have an answer for you every time you go to the corner. 
very little are you going to hear me say raw raw stuff I, it's just not my style but there are a lot of athletes that respond to that really really well it's just not my style my style is usually I'm going to tell you what you need to do to win and if you're losing what you need to do to stop losing and that's usually kind of what I do when I get in the corner so um uh past I'll just use a couple weeks ago with uh Johnny um after we got back from round one you know I just pretty much said hey Volume is the only thing that's because we're waiting a little bit too much because, you know, I'm a volume guy, but as a coach, so I felt well, we were waiting a little bit too much, uh, you know, uh, definitely stressed that, you know, we're doing a good job as far as the counter wrestling goes. We had to get into our own offense. Uh, look for your takedowns because he sits heavy on this, you know, his lead leg. And then um, the boxing coach had said something. And then the final thing I said is start playing off of your takedowns. Uh, you know, takedown fakes. You can come up with offense every single time because he's de de defending hard. At that point, I mean, you had to have trained it before you got there. And for me, lucky enough, Johnny Hendricks has got just a great mind for seeing things. So that week of the fight, we probably worked the knees on, you know, maybe one of the days. But the other day, we really didn't work the knees and the kicks because we just wanted to make sure that our weight cut wasn't brutal. We just wanted to do it healthy, and we did just a lot of stuff with just punching and getting the weight off. But fight night, he went for a takedown, and uh, we watched how uh, really, really quick Hector fired his hip back to get his leg out of the way. And it told us right away that we've got offense afterwards. That's just too much effort to get your hip out of the way. You're too worried about the takedowns, which means you're not worried about other things. Then Johnny goes out there and have offensive success. Between the next two rounds, I say the knees are taking over this fight. Uh, I say a couple other things, um, you know, along those lines. Boxing coach comes in and says, you know, look, make sure you, now's the time to really sit in your left hand, that kind of deal, whatever. And then of course we make our calls throughout. I am usually going to be a guy who says something instruction-wise. The only time you'll even hear me say something along the lines of tired is if it's in game plan. So for that one, we knew that we would, you know, because of his explosion, because of that he wears a little bit after he throws his power, we knew that it's important for us to get into wrestling exchanges right away. So that's one thing I also said in the corner after round round one. I said, you did a good job in that round of getting into tie-ups, getting into over-unders, because those are the things that are going to take from this gas tank down the road. And then third round, we, we had our way. So that's just my style as a coach. Uh, I, I usually have watched a fighter so much that I know what they want to do to have success. And usually if I know what you're going to do to have success, that's the root of how I do, how I beat you. Uh, I don't beat you because I think of, you know, I find the, the cheat code, you know, I don't have the contra code or anything like that for the MMA game. But if I know how an athlete needs to have success against me, I know how I can build against it. So we knew what he needed to have success. We knew if he landed anything big, we needed to stay poised. We couldn't bail because if we bail, he's going to try to, you know, hunt you down. And when he did land a couple shots on Johnny, Johnny was composed and right there. And, Rob, and then uh, uh, Hector realized he had to start all over. I think as a coach, you owe it to your fighter to always have an answer in the corner. And I think that that's the most important thing. So um, uh, I hate to throw a guy under the bus, uh, but an example of a guy who probably wishes he had a moment back in the Kelly Pavlik fight with Bernard Hopkins, um, Kelly got into round nine. And he says, nine or 10, and he says to Jack Lowe, he says, uh, what did I do out there? And Jack Lowe said, I don't know, but you got to do something. In my mind, as a coach, I feel like if he's looking back in that moment, I bet you he wishes that he gave an answer. Even if the answer didn't work, I wish he gave an answer. But to me as a coach, I can't do that to my athletes. 
if you ask me anything, I've got an answer for you. And I know this game enough to, to be able to give you an answer. Now, sometimes it comes down to the guys just better. But if you're a coach, you owe it to your fighter to always have an answer to something. Um, even if it's, you know, uh, oh, gosh, what's the name of that movie? There's like a submarine movie. I think it's... Um, uh, uh, no, the one with Matthew McConaughey. I think it's like U47 something something. Anyways, in it, Matthew McConaughey doesn't have an answer for something. And then one of the guys who's, you know, older, but not, you know, uh, McConaughey commands him. He says, you always have to have an answer in your position. When guys go out there and compete and when girls go out there and compete, really their lives are in your hand. A lot of people think, oh, because boxing, you know, gets hit so much more, it's more dangerous or uh, kickboxing or, or football, whatever it is, it's more dangerous. No, 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 no. It takes one shot to take someone's life. Okay. It just takes one. So when these athletes put themselves on the line out there, they really are doing something phenomenal. They are doing something that's scary. They're daring to be great in a very unique way. And that's every single person that's ever gotten to the cage. I don't care what your skill level is. You put yourself out there in a very different way. As a coach, it is your responsibility to have an answer. Even if the answer is throwing in the towel, you know, you have to have an answer for your athletes. Um, and I guess that's kind of why I come from the view that I come from. Um, so as far as you getting on coaches and so on about cornering, I mean, uh, for me as a coach, if, if you give, you know, bad cornering on the other side, I mean, that's on you. But uh, I know that if my athletes listen to me, it's like there's we're all fighting one guy, you know, as opposed to just he you fighting him. Okay, but I understand that. I always, I always feel like there's a certain investment with the coaches. I mean, I know the coaches aren't in there fighting, but I know coaches like to again, especially against certain coaches, they, they like to get that have that name on their resume. Like to have, you know, I, I coach against Greg Jackson. I'm two and zero against him. I'm three and zero against Cordero. I, I know that stuff. It matters to a lot of people, not in the way that it overshadows the fighter, but it does matter because that's that's an example of how your game plan and your skills and your experience were able to face up against somebody who's equally skilled or as far as the public is considered superiorly skilled in comparison. So I, I know that's important to coaches. Um, just to get you back a little bit on um, UFC 209, uh, there's a fight coming up between Ferguson and, and I just want to get a little bit of your, your perspective on that because that's what everybody's considering to be one of the best fights in UFC history as far as the skill sets, the ranks and the records of the guys involved. And I know if a lot of the fight is going to be, you can assume it's going to be decided on the ground, but I wanted to get your take on it from a guy who's been very experienced both every angle of the MMA game. What do you, how do you see this fight going? Um, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm not giving a full answer, but for me, it's simple. As long as the fight's on the feet, Ferguson's going to be winning. As long as the fight's on the ground, I think Khabib's going to be winning. I think because Ferguson, the way he plays his grappling, he's just really super aggressive towards submissions, and then people freak out and they get out of there. You know, he really – he holds on to arms, uh, you know, really heavy, and he'll pivot on things, and he'll attack leg locks and stuff like that. And I think a very power control guy like Khabib, he gets a hold of you, you're staying down. And Khabib, one of the – when he went against that kid who kind of took the fight on short notice last year, he went into a series that started the second round where he went to like four or five different takedown attempt uh, like series. He just kept chaining them together until he got his guy in the ground. And I was like, this dude's special. Um, clearly, when he went against uh, Johnson, when they were on the feet, Johnson was tooling him, like just, just piecing him up. And uh, 
Ferguson's got to see that and say, okay, I'm going to have advantages here. But Ferguson's really not that type of a guy. He's not like a pick you apart kind of guy. He's just a, a, a train that just keeps going. Like it just, he just keeps throwing. He just keeps throwing. He keeps building offense. And the next thing you know, you've been trying to punch with him and you can't punch anymore and he can still go. And when you go on the ground, he's got his darts down. So if you, if you go down and you try to come up on a single with him, he's punching through every single time. Or if you end up in, in, in any type of fetus position due to ground and pound or whatever, you can forget about it. He's going to pull your head up and punch through. Like he's always looking for that and he knows how to finish it. He's very, very tough there. So I'm assuming that he's thinking once I get on the ground, uh, I'm for, or, uh, I'll have my opportunities because I've got 25 minutes to find a sub. With that said, those 25 minutes feel longer and seem like the opportunity is going to get further away from you when you get the kind of control that Khabib brings. Because Khabib kept trapping the arm with Johnson and just kept, I mean, under the armpits, uh, you know, um, you know, under the armpits, body, head, kept playing it. As soon as he loses the trap, the trapping is just when you uh, have one of the arms secured and you're punching with the other hand. If you have an arm secured, uh, body control, um, and you're still punching, that's kind of how we play with, uh, that's a full level of trapping. And he's able to do that to Johnson a lot after Johnson had his moments on the feet. And then after that, just the wear of it made the next takedown easier. So Ferguson, you know, uh, who last lost to Johnson, um, he's got all the tools to score effectively offensively for a long period of time. Uh, but I'm not as confident in his ability to play underhooks. And, and uh, it's like Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor is much better at defending takedowns in the cage than he is in space. Uh, I think that Ferguson will have moments where he might defend a couple, but because they just keep getting chained, he's going to end up on his back. And then it's just how fresh can you be when you're pivoting on arms and so on. So uh, luckily for him, Khabib's probably going to start off for the first two and a half minutes on the feet. And who knows where Khabib's head is after his dad and brother couldn't get into the country, you know, um, uh, or excuse me, training partner, couldn't get into the country. But man, if I just go styles, I just don't see enough growth and Khabib in the stand-up game to make me think that he would even be remotely competitive with Ferguson unless he landed something crazy. But as far as, you know, beginning, middle, and end are, um, like, the way I try to say it is, your striking game should add to a finish. Like, it should be it should be a movie that builds in a certain direction. So, like, I don't see that ever from Khabib. Either he lands something big over the top or he gets into his wrestling. Meanwhile, I look at Ferguson. Ferguson's striking does do that. It starts off with small shots. It's got some flash in it with, with spinning offense and elbows and so on. But then the next thing you know, it just builds into this avalanche and you can't get him off of you. And the next thing you know, it's better to stay behind your guard. Uh, not to mention his chin because uh, Barbosa hit him a lot. It just didn't matter. Just the train kept going and he kept getting hit back. So that's kind of how I see it playing out. If you, you know, put a gun to my head and made me pick winner, I would go Khabib because I definitely like what his wrestling game can do uh, for long periods of time. Um, and he's got the bigger wins, I would say. But, man, man, Ferguson, this is just – it's a fun fight. And uh, uh, I really do think that it's its going to be fight of the nine. I do think it's the fight that most people are looking forward to. Um, unfortunately, even though their fight, you know, was, you know – uh, decently entertaining, but it was only entertaining in spots, I'd say, with um, uh, Woodley and uh, Wonderboy. But most of it was just Woodley kind of winning, boxing, and going. Rounds two and three really had a lot of that feel um, until some big shots landed. And then round five was back to two and three. So 
uh, I think that this one's going to steal the show. It's the pe one people are most interested in, and they had to make it for an interim title because they needed to make it five fights, but um, the five rounds. But, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Um, I lean Khabib's wrestling to take the day, but uh, the fans are right to be excited for it. Ferguson. Let me, let me ask you a question, Stephen. Uh, like with Tony, I, 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 I know he has a heavy background. I know he used to spar with Victor Ortiz in, in the years back. He used to get a lot, a lot of work with pro boxers. And um, you're you're big you're a big football fan, so you might know that I've heard this. I talked to Michael Irvin actually made this quote years ago. He's like, "You attack a man's weakness to beat him. You attack a man's strength to break him." Mm -hmm. Is in my opinion that Miguel Torres mindset, like he'll fight you in your best area to prove that he can beat you because he doesn't want to beat you. He wants to break you. And Aaron, I've seen when and when he's fought, he's he. He forced the fight on the feet with Barbosa. He was in extended grappling exchanges with Castillo. Um, when he fought, when he uh, fought Venata, instead of he, he has a jab, he knows how to throw combinations. He knows how to work the body. He knows how to transition from punching range into the wrestling range. But for some reason, he just came out and tried to bulldoze him. A lot of people are going to tell me that's because he thought the guy he didn't know who the guy was. He was overconfident, but it's in his fights. He continually attacks people in their biggest area of strength to kind of take their heart or to take their confidence. And then he brings you into his area of strength and finishes you. For sure. Oh, well, really? Oh, go ahead. I said, that, that's, that's basically my concern for him because I think he's a good guy, but a lot of his skill to me is his ability to transition from all the ranges, the kicking, the punching, to clinching, to wrestling, to grappling. And his versatility is what makes him effective. But a lot of times he throws away his versatility to challenge you in your A game because he wants to prove a point when he fights you. Like, I'm, I'm not scared to exchange with you. I'm not as scared to wrestle with you. And I think that that's something that has had him on a tightrope. I think a lot of the fights he's won later on have been fights he could have easily lost had his chin not held up, had one move, had one thing gone one way or the other. I don't think it was a clear domination as people make it out to be. Yeah, you know, the first thing I'd say is uh, you just got to know the monster you're doing it against, you know? Um, there are some guys you can get away with doing that. And on your way up the ranks, the, you, you are able to get away with doing some of that stuff. But when you get to the top, I mean, you got to have your skill. You got to have your identity down. You can't just go out there thinking my game plan for this fight will be to break somebody, you know, beat them in their game. Uh, you're going to run to not just one guy, but a lot of guys you can't beat in their game. You know, it's what they do. So um, don't rule out. His, the possibility that in one of those random scrambles that he's able to get Khabib in something. Uh, I mean, he would have to break Khabib's leg off to get him in a, in, a, in a leg lock. Like, I just don't see Khabib tapping to anything like that. He'd rather let the ankle break and fight on one leg than, than you know, tap to something like that. Not ruling out it as a possibility. I'm saying when he gets on his back, I know that he will probably, and he can get himself up, but I know that he will probably look to play some aggressive submission game and so on. And you are right to worry because Khabib knows how to play the right kind of heavy. And Khabib's not huge, you know. Khabib is a guy who really just understands wrestling position, tighten you up, uh, and then wearing on you. Like, you know, a guy who I work with, Kamaru Usman, he knows his identity. As somebody comes out there and says, I'm going to beat Kamaru Usman and pressure wrestling on the cage, good luck. You know what I'm saying? You just got to know your monster. You know, you know who you're playing it with. Because in the end, Kamaru knows how to do that for three, four, five rounds, and he'll get you. He'll get stronger at doing what he does in round three. Khabib 
will get stronger at doing what he does in rounds two and three and four and five if you allow it. So really, you've got a you've got a great skill. You've got the advantage on the feet. So if you can just beat him with where you know you're superior, that's where you're going to be great at. But as far as that Irving quote, it is true and it is awesome because it does mess with somebody. If you had a guy who's like a wrestler and you come out there and you start taking him down, it'll mess with him mentally. You know, or if somebody feels like they've got, you know, their takedown game really are their uh, uh, get up game really good. And you go out there and you get a takedown. They get up right away. You retake them down. Go ahead and do that for two rounds. See what happens to them mentally. You know, there is something about beating someone in their strengths and it and it can break them but when you get to the best guys in the world the chances of doing that goes way down way down so um uh it'll be interesting it'll be fun to see how this goes shout out to irving he's a real nice dude i see him at several ufc events uh but yeah i just don't i just don't see it i i just don't see either guy losing because of something mental uh if they do start to lose it could just be the wear of what the other person's doing, you know. Uh, and sometimes that's if you're getting wrestled a lot, it's not that you mentally break down. Like I don't think Johnson mentally broke down when he's fighting Khabib. I just think he was stuck. And as you're stuck, you're getting beat up. You start to wear down just from the physical work, you know. Um, uh, and then I mean that can come into play. But he goes out there. It's not like he didn't get off the stool. It's not like he didn't try to throw punches. It's just the wear of what that does to you physically comes into play. And uh, I think both guys have had the advantage of beating people in the mental game and fights before. Um, but I think that when you get to the highest of level, it's so tough to get a, you know, uh, Kane Velasquez to break mentally, you know, uh, and, um, it, it's just, it's just tougher with certain athletes. And I think that this is going to be one of those fights. You've got to have the numbers, not just the style. You got to have the number of takedowns or the number of offensive strikes to, to really break one of these two guys down. Yeah, that, that it's it comes to a lot of other it comes to a lot of factors. That's one thing I've had to really learn is you can have a strategy, you can have you can have that you can have a scheme because as I know, as most people know, you're a college football fan, and I often compare MMA or combat sports to um, to college football because in college football, even if there's a big talent gap, to a certain degree, you can scheme anybody. You can set up different senses, you can control them. And depending on it, how focused they are or how mentally tough they are when they get put in that spot, you can beat anybody to a certain degree on any given day. But there becomes, there's limits of that because there, when the talent gap reaches a certain point, that's when you start seeing later on, you'll see the class, like they say in football, the class shows over the period of time where in basketball over the ser- seven game series, the best team is going to win if it goes to full seven because you can jump to an early lead, but eventually the town's going to come to the top. And that's what happens in a lot of fights. Um, I have a question. It, it basically, when you have a fighter who maybe who maybe doesn't have certain advantages or maybe is outclassed to a certain degree physically, how is it that you – I mean, how is because a lot of fighters I've talked to seem to think that's really well. Everybody thinks they have a knockout punch. Everybody thinks they're super durable, regardless of what the results have shown them athletically with anybody so they sometimes dismiss the athletic advantage a fighter has over them and as a result that usually has a high price that makes them pay because they're not respecting what that person can do physically um i know you don't want to rein people in i know you want to build that confidence but there has to be a certain amount of awareness of certain of you know explosiveness or strength or power for you to come up with an effective game plan for them to execute they have to respect those things 
and don't seem to have a awareness. So how do you how do you resolve that? How do you get that point across to them that they need to be aware of this or that maybe they don't want to be in this spot with this guy? Because a lot of guys have the confidence that, oh, I can bang it out with them. I, I can trade punches with Mark Hunt. Mm, I don't know if you can. You know, it's uh, at some period of time, the trust has got to be developed between you and your athlete. And if they trust your, your word and they trust your vision on something, they're usually going to um, submit to whatever you have for them. You know, like Johnny, Johnny Hendricks has said so many times over the years, when we asked about schedule, he'll say, whatever you guys say the schedule is. And then uh, um, when he asks about opponent, he goes, whoever, whatever opponent you guys want. Like, like literally he's just submissive to these individuals are going to put me in the best position to have success. So I'm going to trust their, their, their knowledge there. So, um, that's kind of how I've always taken that kind of, you know, as far as that view of it, uh, at some period of time, they got to believe you. Now I understand that, you know, and every coach should understand sometimes the moment takes it, you know, uh, and I've had fighters who they've just pursued a KO just because they thought the moment was there. And in my mind, I want to yell and say, no, that's not what we worked. But at the same time, you, you got to let a shark be a shark. And uh, normally I'm going to just tell you to clean it up. But if you feel like you've got a KO, I'm going to let you go. Um, with that said, it's really, really important that people understand your coach wants you to win just almost as much as you. I won't say just as much, but almost as much as you. So ideally they're going to move you in a certain way where – um, they feel like you can have success. And if you're going against a guy that's a banger, they're going to do everything in their power to keep you away from, from you know, getting those big shots. Uh, if you are determined to exchange, I mean, uh, if they, you know, the biggest thing is sometimes you just got to get people on the stool. And then when you get them on a stool, you can explain and work them out of it. If, you know, but in MMA, it's a stoppage sport. So sometimes you don't get that opportunity. So, you know, going into round one, you got to let them know like, hey, this is what's a risk here. You can go for it here, but understand that this is guy's got a mean left hook and he's going to, he's used to finding his shot in exchanges. So if you go for it, you are giving this up. You've got to be careful. You can't give, give this kind of offense away. Uh, you've got to be careful about how you play the exchange game, but then you got to let a fighter be a fighter. You know, uh, sometimes you can get people to cut all the way off and other times not so much. So, you know, um, Jermaine Durandami pretty much won, the first three rounds with counter right hands. That's all she did, you know. Uh, but it was clear that Holly Holm wasn't trying to exchange with her. Holly Holm is usually a person that goes first or goes second. Um, but Rhonda gave her the opportunities to land the counters. But when she's got to find her own offense, she usually kind of streams together like a combo and people are able to play just outside of it. doesn't mean that she's, you know, isn't skilled or whatever. It just means that it's a little bit tougher to find people sometimes uh, when they're that level of skill and kickboxing like a Shevchenko and like a Jermaine Durandami is. So if you've got Jermaine and you know that, you know, you can win that counter shot offense. And if you've got Holly home, it's to your benefit to say, Holly, we're just going to land with, you know, singles or combination flurry and move to the side. She's just going to sit on counter rights. She's just going to sit on counter rights. You've got to try to build your offense against what somebody else is doing. Um, and she was wired to not be in those exchanges. And what happened after the fight, Jermaine said that she was upset because she thought that there was going to be more of a war that she was going to come to fight. And she was wired to do what her coaches said. And no matter what anybody feels, you know, about how her performance success or not, 
she didn't get in there and get caught with nothing crazy. You know, Holly Holm stayed to the discipline despite the athlete that was in front because of the athlete that was in front of her. So I think that you always have to be of that mentality that um, trust us. Trust us in the corner. Trust us in the corner. Understand that, you know, if we're going to give up anything, we'll give up the counter right. But we're not going to give up the counter right, the hook, and the right hand. So if she got hit, she restarted. She didn't go in there and look to start punching again. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes they're too hurt. Like in a situation with uh, Ronda Rousey, with uh, Holly Holm, she was hurt. And then at that point where you're, like, yelling instructions, her mind's in a different place. And she's just looking to go, go, go. And it, and it runs you into more things. So don't go thinking that even if you prepare for it that the moment of a fight won't stop it but i really do believe that if you've got an athlete that's just reckless despite it that might just be their identity and you got to try to match them accordingly but they're doubt they're always going to run into that person you just you, you just can't exchange with everybody um without ever getting caught you know so that's just the the nature of how this thing works yeah i, I said when they um and, and I, I always wonder this as, as a person who watches fights and comments on fights and analyzes them. And we're coming up on it, so I, I, I had to cut you short, but I just want to get kind of a, a quick answer on this. When you have a fighter who doesn't follow the game plan, I've gotten the impression that certain fight, certain coaches take it personally, like this fighter failed. And I know there's a financial quality to that because look at Edmund Tar Tardervian. Excuse me, I can't say his name right. When Ronda's winning, everybody comes to him. She starts losing everybody's tearing him apart and his reputation and his business has reflect that. So I understand how, how coaches get so invested in it, but on your end, do you take that like to heart? Do you start thinking this person is making me feel bad? I might have to, I might have to cut him loose or send him somewhere else because people are applying these game plans and these adjustments to me because we don't know everything that's going on. We have to assume at some point that either you're not preparing him or he's not listening, which means either you're not communicating, you don't have his trust, or you don't know what you're doing. It's either one or the other. It's, it's very rarely some some idiosyncratic reason. So I, I just wanted a quick, quick answer for you, like how you feel about that. Like, does that hit you? Does that feeling kind of hit you? For me as a coach, we win together and we lose together. Simple as that. Simple as that, it's always gonna be that. So uh, if I go out there and I say, hey, this is what opening's there, this is happening and so on. If I yell a command uh, that I think will give you offensive success, that get, think you that will get you out of danger, whatever. If uh, you didn't listen, if it didn't happen that way, if you lose, we lose, you know, simple as that. It's just, it's never, if they had to listen to me, that's not how I get down as a coach. As a coach, it's very important to me that no matter what happens out there, it's us, you know, we, we walk in this. So I was able, you know, Know, blessed to have the opportunity to win a world championship with the guy and uh, I've also been on the side of you know uh, big time KOs early big time KO losses early uh, it's just you do this sport long enough you're on both sides of it there's nothing you can do about it I don't care how great a coach you are there's nothing you can do about it your day is coming on every side of this game that's just kind of how it is so the main thing that I would tell people it's I personally desire let the athlete know that i desire their success very much and that i'm always going to yell something that i think puts them in position to have success if you know it doesn't go that way or if they feel something or if they get you know if they pursue something or it doesn't work out or they weren't listening whatever i gotta credit the opposition you always got to credit the opposition in this game because there's a loser in every fight like you know 99 of the time there's a loser in every fight um and I just kind of go from there. And I just, uh, I've never been one of those people 
who take offense to it. Now, you and I watch boxing. Sometimes you listen to boxing corners, and these guys are hot. You know what I'm saying? They are so mad that what the athlete's doing out there is just messing their day up. Like, they're just yelling, like, you know, uh, whatever, you know. I done told you to stop doing yada, 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 and all you got to do is that kind of stuff, whatever. I'm like, whoa, 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 ain't nobody punching you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of how I see it. Like, sometimes I'm like, just calm down. Give them the tools that you think they need to be successful. It's not, you know, a one-minute opportunity for you to, you know, express your displeasure. You know, it really, really is this Great, wonder, you know, great, beautiful, yet violent combat sport, and they need you. They need you on those times. They need you in the up, and they need you in the down. So when you have those moments and you go out there and you don't have success, uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect the skill level of the coaches. You know, uh, sometimes it's just the athlete you have with you. You know, I don't think that uh, Freddie Roach was made a better coach than Floyd Mayweather Sr. when Haddon was knocked out by Pacquiao. I don't feel that way. Uh, I feel that Pacquiao was better than Hatton, you know, just better than Hatton. And that's kind of how this game goes. So uh, I would just implore any coach that's listening to this or anybody who's thinking about coaching and so on, let it always be we, you know, because it really is a wonderful sport. And I've, I've been in that winning locker room so much, and I've been in that losing locker room some. And every time, sit down with the athlete, tell them you love them, walk them, because they didn't want to fail you. You know, they didn't want to go out there. And, you know, uh, we're old school for, you know, people who've been in this game for a while. Your loss does reflect your coach and reflect your, 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 your gym and, you know, where you come from. And they feel it bad enough. So – uh, I've had moments where in the back I've had to hold my tongue because I've watched coaches just tear into their fighters after they lost. And in my mind, I go, I need to say something to this person so that they stop talking crazy. But I also have to realize it's not my place. You know, it's them and their athlete. But if you come and you train with me at War Room Gym uh, and some of the a lot of other great coaches across the nation, it's always us. It's always us. So, uh, and I kind of leave it at that. And, you know, you brought up the thing with Edmund and, and um, you got to imagine how tough that is for Rhonda when when so many people tell Rhonda she should, you know, leave this person, not going to deal whatever. And she needs to go to a real camp, not going to deal whatever. That's not an easy bond to break. You know, like that's just not as easy as just saying you're losing with that person. Get out. You know, it's just different. Man, did they win? They won better than anybody in the history of women's fighting. And in a lot of cases, they won better than anybody in the history of fighting, you know, like to have that many quick stoppages to and right at the time as Instagram's getting hot. And it used to be 15 second clips that you could have an Instagram and your whole fight fits in the clip. And it happens three fights in a row where your whole fight, you know, like fits in the clip like that kind of stuff is huge for, you know, her and her confidence, even though it didn't look great. Like I hated the fight with um uh, uh, um, uh, Beth Cohera. I hated that fight, but like ideally, um, even though she won it, uh, I, I ideally I understand the bond between coach and athlete, and it's not as easy as just saying leave a person. So anybody out there, you're thinking about going into coaching? Uh, I be telling Shawan to go into coaching all the time. I jump on him about it all the time. Uh, See, I, I didn't make it up, guys. Yeah. I didn't make it up. Nobody believes me when I say this. You yes. heard it from the man himself. Yes. So. It's, it's always us, you know, that that's just kind of how this game's got to be, you know. Uh, that's why football teams, you hear who's got it better than us. Like you hear those kind of sayings. They, they didn't come from nowhere. It really is. Uh, there's a reason why um, Stipe runs and hugs his coaches the first thing he does right after he wins the, the world title in Brazil. It's the bond is different, you know, which is different. 
everybody in that corner wants you to succeed. And if you don't succeed, they're in there, uh, same same as Aldo's corner. How many times? You didn't see one coach yelling at Aldo after he lost uh, to Connor. They were on the ground crying with him because they knew he, if you if he lost, they at least wanted him to perform. And it didn't happen there that way. Didn't didn't go that way for them. So that's how it's got to be in this game all the time. It can't be your athlete's fault. That's just I'll stand by that forever. Even if you tell your athlete exactly what to do and it doesn't go their way, uh, it's still we lost as a team. It's no matter what. Well, thank you know what that that's the perfect note to end on. And I, I hope any fighters who may listen or fans or potential coaches hear that because that's a message that needs to go out. These guys need to be supported. You can, you can talk all the ins and outs the next day, the weeks to come, but you need to show that support. And that, that's something the teachers and parents and anybody else in any position of authority need to remember. It's us. We're going to work better. We're going to be better. We're going to improve. That's how me and Raphael do the show. We go at each other. We work together. We're just trying to put, put the best product out for people. And that's what I think should apply in all phases of life. For sure, and I, I, to think, I want to apologize I to uh, Raphael. I'm sorry, I'm long-winded. I got to talk, and you get to talk about combat sports. I'll talk forever, and I know you probably wanted to get back in, Raphael. My apologies. No, man, you're definitely good at all. This is kind of how we run our um, interviews. I'm, I'm yeah, more of this, I this, this, this show. This Raphael's like, Shawan, you need to he text me. Shawan, you need to shut up, dude. The show's almost over. <laughs> it's all good, so, man. We definitely appreciate having you here. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, you were, you, we, you're our second guest. We had Marcus Davis on. He was talking about his coaching career. And um, he, he set a very high bar. You're right there with them. Thank you for the technical and the uh, the background on the coaching corners. Maybe I'll be a little bit nicer to these guys after the fight instead of just tearing them down like I usually do. But I appreciate your time, and I appreciate the energy you brought, and I appreciate the message you ended this conversation with. Thank you very much, and for the inspiration and for the uh, support, man. And I really appreciate it on a personal level. Thank you very much. No problem. And thank you to all the listeners and all the people who follow your podcast and uh, people who get, you know, combat sports out there. You know, I'm just really I'm just a Christian guy I was looked to talking to a guy about Christ. Turns out he was a fighter. And then it got started from there. I started training coach or as a coach like almost 10 years ago now. And it just success built upon itself. And I just was fortunate to get to work with a lot of great athletes in my career. So uh, I just I'm a person who wants to spread what happened to me so definitely you guys got to get on swan about getting into coaching because we need more guys like him in the game who, who put the time in and so on and and it's a hard truck you know it's not necessarily the most glamorous thing um but go out there push yourself out there dare to be great coaches have got to dare to be great just like fighters do so everybody get on swan make him coach all right, thanks, Steve. gonna have my my mentions filled up with people saying why aren't you listening to this man so thank you very much no problem, no problem. Nice to meet both of you guys uh, officially. Appreciate it, right, man. Definitely you thank you for having you here. For sure. God bless. Yep. Have a good night. Have a good night. So, Sean, that was a great conversation there, man. I was, um, definitely learned a lot of what it's like to see it from, from his side. I think I definitely appreciate everything he had to say there. I, I admit, you know, the one thing, it's like uh, when Johnny Hendricks went on that losing streak, you could see when Johnny was losing and he was hurt, you could see Steven right there. And I think the way he ended this conversation was just perfect. It's about us. You know, even if you don't do the work, what we're supposed to do or I mess something up, we win together, we lose together. And, and I really believe that everybody should apply that in their life. Like if people did that with the people they know and their family and, and every aspect of life, I think the world would be a better place. So I think that's a lesson they can apply to anybody. But um, he gave us some really good insight on, you know, what is, what is a person who's been on that big stage routinely and had a guy go through huge winning streaks and minor losing streaks, he's seen both ends of it. So 
you, you know, he, uh, he was very empathetic to other coaches, even ones he didn't agree with. He was very empathetic to their experience, what their fighter went through and what they were going through. And, I, and that was really impressive. I mean, that's that's a really good guy out there. That, that's a really good guy. Yeah, definitely there. So let's let's continue our talk about um, some of the topics this week. So let's like, I also want to talk about, get back to UFC 209. What um what else kind of stands out from this show for you? Uh, I've looked at the card, and there's a couple of points. You know, I wrote about um, Rashad Evans earlier in this week, and I think that we may be looking at we may be looking at a road test um, for Rashad Evans. Not being that uh, Daniel Kelly is a massive, um, massively hard fight for him, but we don't know what is next for Evans. He, um, he he definitely may be, he's at the later stages of his career, but is this something that kind of, um, that we should, we should expect to see the end of it or, or what should we expect from uh, Evans on Saturday? I actually wrote an article about this, breaking down the finer points of the fight. And the thing about it is this fight is really should be a showcase. If he can make the weight, it should be a showcase for him because even in the fact that he's lost, he's only lost to a certain caliber of guy. And he, and he really hasn't been stopped except for Teixeira. He's been able to hang in. He's had his moments. And the guys he's lost to are much better than anybody Daniel Kelly's even beaten. Kelly's got a win streak, but he's been beaten up on third and fourth tier guys. The thing is, we, we really don't know what's, what, what state Evans is in. I mean, he had to cancel fights for medical reasons. He's been injured. And he just hasn't seemed to have the fire Yes in previous incarnations of his time in the UFC. That's that's where my concern is. He's got the speed event. Even if he's, Evans is slowed down, he's not as quick, he's not as mobile as he used to be. His technique has never been super crisp. A lot of it's been, his, a lot of his striking is attribute-based based on him being able to get in and get out and react faster than you and, and time you. But if he doesn't really have the fire for it, Kelly's the wrong guy to face. In theory, he should just blow through him. The better athlete, he's better in every single area. But Kelly's a really gritty fighter. He's been in bad positions in every single fight he's been in, and he's had to battle his way back and slowly chop chip away from guys and slowly walk them down and eventually beat him down. You watch all his fights. He's been against better athletes, younger guys, guys who hit harder. All the who've had all the advantages Rashad's going to have over him, and he's found some way to win. Now they weren't the class of Rashad Evans, but they were. They had similar advantages and similar approaches, way to tough it out grind them out and then finish them or win decisions and that, that that's a certain aspect you can't ever overlook that mental aspect his game isn't really complex he doesn't he's not a really great kicker he's not even a very good striker to be quite honest as a grit and a savviness that comes from competing in combat sports for his entire life he was a three-time olympian so he knows about pressure he knows about competing on that night shot hasn't seemed to be on in the nights he's needed to be on in a long time every time you he lost a fight he's like well, I was feeling good, and I got in there, and I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't perform. And if he can't perform against Daniel Kelly, I don't know that he has a career left. Daniel Kelly's not the kind of guy he should lose to. I mean, he shouldn't really even be pushed by him. But if he loses to him, he's really got to consider retiring. He's never lost this caliber guy, particular caliber guy. And if he fights Kelly and loses, it's essentially over for him. If Kelly loses, we just find out that he's not he's not a legitimate contender. He's a 40-year-old guy with a lot of injuries who's not in the best – who's not really built for the long-term career in MMA. He, he's got maybe, what, two, maybe three years at the most? Yeah. But um, Evan loses to this guy. I'm going to have to 
talk retirement because this is the kind of guy he never lost to before and he never should lose to. Definitely. Uh, I think it's a it's a very staunch test for him. It's something else I actually wrote about for the site this week too, because I'm really concerned. You know, if he five feels that he's not able to get the not able to get it done, and as you mentioned, you're not able to be able to pull the trigger. I think it is about time for him to uh, walk away from the sport. He still has enough to offer as a coach. I think he, I think he was someone that could fit in as a great coach or as a commentator. He can still contribute, but I just don't think in the cage anymore. Yeah, I mean, you saw what happened to Tim Kennedy. You get old overnight. You never know when it's going to hit. Mm-hmm. One, one time Tim Kennedy went life and death. If Romero pushed him. Next time, he's getting beat up by a blown-up welterweight. And not just beat, outclassed, outworked, outhustled. Didn't look like he belonged in the same cage as Gal- Castellum. And that could happen to Evans. Even though he's basically older and more shop-worn guy, if he's not on, he could get finished. Definitely. And, Definitely. And that's just fine. And the other guy that's standing out that I'm looking forward to seeing is Vando Venata. You know, I picked him as my rookie of the UFC rookie of the year last year, and he's just someone that I am looking forward to watching um, come Saturday. I think he's something special, and I think we're going to see the next phase in that. Yeah, he lost his first fight in the octagon, but he took it on, like, what, two weeks' notice? This is his um, full camp here. And he has a very strong team behind him, and I'm just looking forward to seeing what he brings to the cage on Saturday. Yeah, I like his style. I like his coach. Gibson is a, a, a great coach, a great strategic and technical mind. You've seen the improvements he's added to um, John Dodson and, and Donald Cerrone. And Venata's a guy he's actually built from the ground up. So this is his, his own personal product with his own spin. Um, like I said before, I think Venata's a good talent. I think he's got athletic ability. I think he's got a unique style. My question is, because of his unique style and some of the highlight real aspects of it and how he did against Ferguson, I'm afraid that they throw him in deep too fast. And I know he's a good fighter. I know he's got some experience. But he hasn't had that much experience against a certain caliber of opponent. And I don't want to see a guy have to, you know, get ruined or get put in a really bad fight matchup-wise because they're trying to they're trying to focus on his appeal. If there's still a process you, you have when you're developing fighters. I don't care how gifted they are, how talented they are. There's still a process. And anytime get away from that process more times than not it blows up in their face there have been prospects who've been ruined before they got in a fight they got put in the UFC too quickly or they got put against certain guys in the UFC too quickly there is a process my um number one uh example of that will kind of always be eric silva you know he could have been something very special very highlight real fighter like he was just something awesome and they threw him in there with John Fitch, and I think they, they definitely, because I think that they were more or less trying to get rid of Fitch rather than um, pushing Silva, but that didn't work out in their favor. He's never been the same since. Yeah, or in the girl side, there was a fighter from uh, the Ultimate Fighter, Jessamine Duke. She needed she needed time to refine and build herself yeah. up. She said that they were in the UFC, and she got all the fight beat out of her. Now she, she can't even compete at the Invicta level. Had they brought her up slower, you never know what could happen. It's yeah, always better to show herself and let them acclimate. And I just, he's such a hot, he's such a dynamic guy. He put on such a show. People were like, put him in with Khabib next. You still need to treat that as a legitimate fight, even though it was short notice. Bring him up, have the level of opponent, move up little by little, and let him work himself into form. And I'm just afraid that, especially with the way the guys who run the UFC now are doing, he might just get thrown to the wolves because they want a, they want a sexy fight. They want something that'll draw some attention instead of developing a fighter, which is long-term for the organization. Yeah, I'm definitely with you 
on that. Um, who else stands out? And there's also you know that that Mark Hunt Alistair Overing fight. Uh, that's going to be that's a hell of a fight there too as well. Especially if um, we you know, we get back one of these bad post-fight uh, test results. But even even still in Octagon, what do you expect from this bout? I just I don't expect it to be the shootout. It, it people think it's going to be. Overeem is more of a stick and move guy. His shins deteriorated a little bit more. I mean, he's the guys he's been knocked out by aren't big punchers. They're not Mark Hunt kind of puncher. And Mark Hunt, as durable as he is, his chin is deteriorated a little bit, so he can't take the punishment that he used to. So I expect them to be. I expect there to be big bursts of violence, but I expect it to be much more strategic kind of fight. Hunt's going to try to navigate the range and the distance, and cut, establish his jab, cut the cage off work Overeem's body and kind of chop him down with a big shot. Overeem's going to try to pivot, work angles, tie Hunt up on the inside, land quick knees, land something big, land something quick, and hopefully catch him and put him away. It's not going to be an all-out brawl because neither one of those guys' chins can hold up to the other guy's power. Overeem, because his chins are routinely shaky, and Hunt, because he's been he's taken a lot of KOs in the past past couple years in the UFC. His chin can still take a lot, but he can't take it like it used to. So he's got to be a little bit more careful and defensive responsibly. So I expect it to be uh, kind of a strategical battle. I I'd like to say Hunt's going to win, but I think I really think Overeem's going to somehow pull it out. I think he's going to mix up his shots. I think he's going to tie him up, go for takedowns, and just try to point fight his way in in case he unless he lands something big, in which case then he'll try to finish. And he's still got more tools. He's a better wrestler, better grappler, and probably the better technical striker and the better defensive striker. And come down to Hunt force those exchanges where he can land those big shots. And I, I've seen Hunt get outclassed by lesser athletes and over and out positioned. Do you think he tries to Uh, I I don't know that he certain submissions from the top he might work an arm triangle. I can see him do a rear naked or maybe a Kimura. I can't see him going from anything that might have him losing position because you don't want Mark Hunt on top of you. You don't want him on top of you throwing anything at all. So I don't think he'll take any risks, and it's gonna it's gonna be one of those submissions. But I don't think he's gonna do anything like an armbar, try a triangle, or anything like that. It's too much of a risk with Mark Hunt's kind of power and his base. How he is from top control, you don't want to give him anything. So he, if he takes him down, he's gonna try Kimura, maybe uh maybe take, turn him over, get his back, something of that nature. I can't see him doing anything, working off his his back for a submission or for control at all. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that one there. Um, who else stands out? You know, some, are there any undercard fighters that or that you're looking forward to seeing, or someone who may not be getting the, the same type of pub um, throughout the week? Um, I, I really, I, I really can't say there is because there's just I, I hate to say this, but there's so much. If you think about all about if you think about the three, the four main card fights, there's just so much going on. Not just in the actual fight, but the other stuff outside the cage. Mark Hunt, it's the he, he hates the cheaters. It's his legal suit against the UFC with Tyron Woodley. It's the way UFC treats him. It's his beef with Dana White. It's prejudice. You know, with um, with with Ferguson and Khabib, it's a matter of these win streaks and who's going to get the next money fight with Conor McGregor. It's it's not just a matter of who's going to win the title or who's going to win this fight. There's so many things working inside and outside the cage. And I don't know that any of the undercard fights – provide that sort of balance to both fighters. I mean, even Daniel Kelly and Rashad Evans, whoever loses this fight, depending on how they lose, they, they might be one step closer to retirement. I mean, Kelly's 40-something, mm -hmm. lifelong combat sport guy. How many years does he have to go? What if he gets knocked out brutally? Rashad Evans, he's been in the game for a long time. He's been a former champion, tough winner, but he lost his edge. 
if he loses to a guy like Kelly, you have to consider retirement. So there's so many storylines that I don't know that anybody on that lower card has anything that generates that kind of balance and that kind of interest. It's easy to be overshadowed. It's just easy to be overshadowed because these four high big personalities with all of these unique angles to their fight in and out of the cage. Yeah, you're definitely very true about that. Some good breakdown there. Um, when I was looking, when I was setting up this show for today, I kind of had completely forgot that Bellator has an event on Friday as well. They're, you know, they're putting together a showcase with um, Marlos Conan and Julia Budd uh, sitting at the at the very top. So yeah, let's 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 talk about that fight because I'm always interested when um, Marlos steps into the cage. I think she's someone who was great for women's MMA, but she won't get the, she'll never get the praise that she deserves for what she's done um, throughout her, her career. So talk to me about that fight. Julia Budd, too. Remember, she has a win over Misha Tate from way back in the day. So how would you break you down uh, this fight? You know what's actually funny about this fight? This is the one time Bellator can actually say their division is better than the UFC. Yep, very true. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, I like Holm. Holmes, Holmes, Holmes a good person. She's She's had great moments as a fighter. I can't say she's a great fighter. I just can't say it. Unfortunately for her, my new streak has started. I had the Misha Tate streak. And unfortunately for Holly Holm, I've had the Holly Holm streak for the past two years. So it's not getting any better for her. But Marlos Kunin and Julia Butter actually experienced legitimate featherweights and they're experienced mixed martial artists. They both came, they had striking backgrounds, but they developed a full balanced game. We, talk, we talked about this earlier when they first announced the fight. Both girls can grapple. Obviously, Kunin is a superior grappler, but Bud can grapple. Both can kickbox. Both are, have, are defensively responsible. Both can wrestle to a certain degree. And both have seasoned, have experience against a high level of opposition at a lower weight class and at this weight class. So in every way possible, if you compare the two featherweight matchups, this featherweight matchup is actually the better one. And it's not even close as far as accomplishment, consistency, quality of opposition, and skill set. Because Holly Holm hasn't really fought really great competition in, in in the in her MMA career. The majority of her wins are against second and I'm not even second tier, third tier girls and then a couple second tier girls. And then when she fought the first tier, she lost, lost again. She's lost and lost in a very decisive manner. And Jermaine Rendami, she'd only beaten one she'd only fought one ranked fighter in the UFC prior to fighting home. And that was Nunes and Nunes stomped her. And she, she, she and home is ranked. The home is ranked at 35, and home was coming off a two-fight losing streak. So it, it's like it's like the total opposite of the UFC card. You have two girls who belong in the division who compete in the division, and are, are coming in coming coming in with full skill set compared to the UFC, where you have two strikers who are so-so grapplers, so-so wrestlers, with so-so level of opposition and so-so level of experience. It's like the complete opposite. And Bellator's Featherweight division is just even with two people, still more legitimate than than the UFCs. In fact, they have more than two people in their featherweight division. So not only do they have more better fighters, they have more fighters in the featherweight division. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a better matchup altogether. I would like to see Kunin win. I don't know that she her punch resistance. She looks a little shaky to me. And one thing, Kunin, as good as she's been, she's not particularly physically strong. You can manhandle her. There's been lesser skilled girls who have dominated her and dictated rounds to her and, and beat her in rounds just off physical strength and aggression. Liz Carmouche was in like her fourth or fifth fight, something of that nature, and Liz Carmouche was up almost three rounds to zero just by taking her down and mauling her. Current Kunin had no 
ability to get her off. She had the technique, but she didn't have any horsepower. Kunin's being manhandled by her. Kunin got manhandled by Misha Tate after coming out to a fast start. Uh-huh. Not a very physical fighter. I could see Bud getting getting a hold of her, reversing position, taking her down, and really laying the lumber on her because I don't think that Kunin takes a shot as well as she used to. I don't think she recovers from a shot as well as she used to. And I think, as I remember, Bud's a physical, active fighter. As far as the skills, Kunin's the far superior skilled fighter. He's got the better experience. So I'm going to go with experience because I think experience counts. But I see... I see, I see a very viable line, avenue to victory in Julia Bud. She just comes out and is aggressive and it's physical. She makes it a physical mauling type fight. Kunin, I don't think will hold up. I think Kunin will get broken down and finished. But if Kunin can maintain the range and control the engagement, she'll outclass her on the feet or on the ground. She's just got to be smart about it. She's most likely going to grapple. Kunin knows her punch resistance isn't there. And if you watch her last couple of fights, she doesn't engage on the feet very much. She uses her hands just to get that body lock and that takedown. Is not engaging in strikes a whole lot unless she has to. So, in essence, uh, to make sure we you know we stay on time here for the show, let's let's look at some of the other news bit bites that were coming on from the week. Um, for sure, let's talk about the return of GSP um, and his pending fight against Michael Bisbee. What was your first reaction when you heard about this fight? My first reaction was. It's going to be really hard for me to make an argument that Tyron Woodley isn't right. <laughs> because Bisping has done, yeah. done less than nothing. And now he's getting the biggest money fight there is outside of Conor McGregor. A 43-year-old man who wasn't even ranked in his division. I mean, I just started thinking, man, everybody who believes in Tyron Woodley is going to be pitching a fit and, and, send, and send fire to the town because the UFC has set themselves up to be thoroughly and roundly criticized for, for this matchmaking. Yeah, and what's interesting, like, it's crazy because if Tyron Willie wins and calls out somebody else that, that that isn't what the people want, it's going to go right back to people booing him and people sc- and cussing and screaming about him again. So he can't win here. Um, and I look at this fight with um, Bisbing and GSP, and I'm like, my reaction was kind of like, eh. Like, I, I, like I, was honestly serious. I would have loved to see them try to pit that GSP um, and uh, GSP Conor McGregor fight. I think that that, that would have been funny. It would, it would have been hilarious to me. But um, yeah, I this fight right here, it just doesn't do it for me. Uh, I, I get why they're doing it. They're trying to make as much money as possible with every event. But I'm not convinced that this is going to be a see, huge I- payday. I think, they dropped, I think they dropped the ball a little bit because this thing's not a huge draw. I talked about this with a fellow podcaster and friend of the show, Patrick Wyman. With, if they wanted to maximize the money, what I think they should have done is have Bisping rematch Anderson Silva because Anderson is coming off a disputed, but a huge win over a ranked guy, a young ranked guy. He beat him. So you could have Bisping and Anderson fight on a separate headline, a separate card. And then you can have GSP against whoever because GSP draws regardless of who he's fighting. So you could have had two big headline cars that made money and said they're trying to squeeze it all into one to have Bisping fight GSP thinking it's going to sell, but Bisping's not a huge draw. I mean, he, he creates some interest with his trash talk, but he's not a guy that people routinely put down their money to see. He never has been that guy. So I, I don't know that I don't know what they're trying to do except maybe put George in a position to win because Bisping's the most vulnerable champion. He, he's, the, he's the guy who's looked the worst against even decent competition. So I'm guessing GSP sees something. And maybe he thinks he can get that third title 
and not have to be put in danger. But I mean, as far as like it making big money, it, it's not that kind of fight. It I mean, it'll make, it'll, it should make the, it's like Conor McGregor makes money against anybody. Floyd Mayweather makes money against anybody. The only time they make huge amounts of money is when they fight superstars. Michael Bisping is not a superstar. And I've said that for years. Everybody's like, oh, Michael Bisping deserves it. He's not a superstar. He's not a superstar in his own country. Much like Tyron Woodley, he has not got his own people on his side, which is part of the reason he is not a superstar. That's why he's got to look for big fights. When you have your own people on your side, you are the big fight. When you have to look for an A side, that means you're not a star and you're trying to get somebody to generate interest so you can make money. And that's the only reason Bisping's doing it. He wants to make money and George St. Pierre is fighting him because Bisping is the most vulnerable champion in MMA. I mean, anyway, division. He is the most vulnerable champion, even worse than Jermaine Rondami. He's the most vulnerable champion in MMA, and that's why GSP is going for it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be um, – it's going to be a hell of a buildup. It's going to be – I don't think – Well, George is, George is going to say that. He's going to say, this is my most dangerous opponent. Yep. I have prepared. Well, he's going to say the same thing he always says. George – this means gonna have to do all the heavy lifting on this one. And yeah, that, and and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, 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 what's the word? I'm not uh, surprised by that at all. Um, and what's interesting is that it's not that the UFC doesn't know how to make the um, coming. It's not that they don't know how to make the correct fights because earlier today, I think or yesterday, they announced that we got Damian Maya and Jorge Masvidal. So. That right there is a great fight for the welterweight division. It's a five. It's supposed to be a five-round fight. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. So how did they drop the ball on? Like, you can't. It's, I get it's what a, I, I get. What they're doing. It's a great fight for the division. It's not a great fight for Damian Maya. How many fights has he won in a row? Like uh, seven I think or eight. Seven now. Yeah. Against ranked quality guys, and his reward is Jorge Masvidal. Nah, dude, that's not a reward. That's like a, we don't want you to get near our champion. To me, that sounds like they're trying to angle it away from him. Like, they don't want him to have a title shot, so they're going to make him face the toughest matchup to make sure he doesn't get a title shot. He should have had a title shot by now. Yeah, I mean, no, right. his opponents, his level of opposition that he's beat in this run is better than the level of opposition Tyrone Woodley's beat. It's better than almost anybody in welterweight, except for maybe Steven Thompson. And he's not anywhere near a title shot. He's having to wait. And if and Thompson wins, he's still not going to get a title shot. Personally, I don't think he's getting past Jorge. I think Jorge's going to beat him. But he shouldn't even have to do this. He should be able to sit out and wait for a title title fight. But he can't afford to. And now he's going to have to be fight yet another top-ranked guy. And a very and dangerous fight. Very dangerous. Yep. yep. He's he's within arm's reach of a, a title shot. And he might as well be a mile away. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of disturbing what they're trying to do. I mean, it's good for us because it's a good fight. But for the fighter, they're doing him a disservice. He, he should have got his title fight by now. I totally agree with you on that. So with that in mind, you know, we're going to go ahead and close the show out. We just had a two-hour show. We had a great conversation, great interview today, and we definitely looked at the, um, the the major events and major fights that are going down this weekend. So with that in mind, why don't you tell everybody what you're working on for this week? Uh, I've actually had a couple pieces put out. I did a uh, – I have a series called It's About to Get Real where I break down particular fights. I, I do a prologue, and then afterwards – I discussed the aftermath. I did that for Kelly versus Evans, and then I did a match. Uh, I did a two-part article that focuses on the two the two fights that Mark Hunt is fighting: one outside the cage uh, with the UFC, and one inside the cage with Alistair Overeem. Kind of going to the history of each history of the UFC, what set up his legal battle with them, history of Alistair Overeem since he's been in the UFC, 
and his pass to victory and Mark Hunt's pass to victory is against him. So uh, I hope that all y'all would uh, check out those check out those those pieces and and admire the, an, the analysis I put there because as world class coach Stephen Wright just said, I should be coaching because I'm just that good. I didn't say it. Raphael heard it. So did you. <laughs> Crazy, yeah. It's definitely that's definitely some good news news to hear there. Um, but with that in mind, man, let's go ahead and close out the show. Um, I appreciate you having you on. Appreciate what you brought to the show. It's another good one, and I'm looking forward to uh, whoever else we bring on and talk to in the. Yeah, and once again, thank you, future. thank you for. I know, I know you, and once again, everybody who likes the show and watches the show and will love this interview. Please comment to this man, tweet him, thank him because this is his show. I just get to co-star on it. And uh, he moved the time back way later than we usually are. He let me and Stephen Wright just ramble on, just like he let me and Marcus Davis talk too much because he wants to give you all the best product and the most information and and bring something different in the conversations and interviews we have. He wants to bring something new to y'all. So he's allowing me to kind of have some freedom on the show creative, creatively. And I appreciate it. And y'all should share how much you appreciate that with him because he didn't have to do it. He could have been like, this is the time we ain't doing it. But he moved it all the way back because he wanted to get – we wanted to give this to the fans. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Raphael, for sacrificing. Go out of your way to let me do the things I like to do on the show. No problem, man. No problem at all. No problem at all. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. Um, be sure to like and share our content. And again, um, tune in to the MMA Ratings Podcast to catch us here. Definitely check out the show, MMARatings.net, and catch us on um, Instagram and Twitter under the, the same name. After that, you know, uh, thanks again, and have a great night, everybody. Have a great night, guys.